All right, are we ready to jump into the Word of God? Oh, thanks for joining us online once again. I'm so glad that you're with us. And uh, we're going through a journey. We're going on a journey through the tabernacle. Uh, And we're going to answer the question, what is true worship? Well, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle, as I explained last week, was essentially a portable tent. It um, It was a tent. It was a meeting place that God gave Moses specific instructions for how to build this tabernacle and it was to serve as a meeting place between god and his people and god's presence physically resided in the tabernacle and this thing called the ark of the covenant that was kept in the holy of holies within the tabernacle and so last week we talked about the role of the priests and how it is the priest's job to minister to god uh through in the tabernacle that the priests carry the presence of God, that they steward meeting places with people and with God. And we also talked about how you are a priest, that the moment that you got saved, the moment you asked Jesus into your life, you were recruited and drafted into the priesthood. You became a priest. First Peter 2, 5 says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy what? Priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, as priests, as worshipers of of God, our primary role in life following Jesus is to minister to God's heart. We are called to minister to God's heart, to know what he likes and dislikes and minister to his heart. Show him our love because of what he has done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But why are we going to be spending... The next couple weeks, talking about an old covenant tent. I mean, we live under a new covenant, don't we? Jesus died, he rose again, he gave us a new law. We don't live under the old covenant, so why are we going to spend so much time talking about the tabernacle and the way that they used to approach God, the way that they used to interact with God? Well, here's why. The tabernacle was essentially an illustrated sermon for three different things. It showed the people, it showed us what God is like. It showed him uh, how we access him and how we worship him. So why is understanding more about the tabernacle important to my worship today, my personal worship life today? Here's the first reason. The first reason is that the process is important. The process is important. Jesus made a way for us to come into God's presence, but God in his heavenly wisdom as a loving father knew that we would have to be led there. We would have to be shown the process to get into his presence. And that's what the tabernacle does. It provides a process. It's, it's the process, church. It's the process of coming into God's presence that prepares our hearts and minds to be able to have a deep relationship with him. It's the process that gets yourself ready to encounter the living God. There's a process, there's a transformation that takes place in our hearts. As, and as we journey with God, as we spend more time with him, we begin to look more and more like the person of Jesus. We become more attuned to his voice. And there's a process to entering into the presence of God. Now, some might be offended at the thought that there's a process for me to approach God. I mean, I'm a child of God. I should be able to come whenever I want. And, and you're right. You are a child of God, and the Scripture says that you can approach the throne of grace with confidence because you are bought at the bl- with the blood of Jesus. You can approach God. But, but why wouldn't there be a process? This is my question to you, because Jesus told his disciples that, 
that, that even prayer has a process. The disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? Jesus said, here's the process. Here's how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That kingdom come. He gave them a process or a method for how to lift up your prayers to God. He showed them a process. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the churches in the New Testament, showed the churches a process of reconciliation. So that if, if one of your members have wronged you, here, here are the steps that you take for reconciliation. You first go to that person one-on-one, then you bring two or three other people, then you take it to the church, and he gave them a step-by-step process for reconciliation. So if there's a process for prayer, there's a process for reconciliation, why wouldn't there be a process for approaching the living God? Why wouldn't there be a process? We, I, maybe you've seen these, these shirts uh, around. They, they say, Jesus is my homeboy. And, 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 you know, I get it. I get it. The shirt is to, is to convey, it's, it's to make God a little bit more relatable. It's to make Jesus a little bit more relatable. And don't get me wrong. God wants to be your forever friend. He wants to have an intimate friendship with you. But he is still the king of the universe. Okay? He's not your homeboy. He's the king of the universe. And although we can approach him with confidence, we approach him with awe and respect and, and, and honor and worship. We show him the respect that he deserves. The process is important. The tabernacle is not about restrictions. It's not about, you know, red tape. Oh, you got to do this thing. You got to do this thing before you can get closer to God. It's not about restrictions. It's about opening up access. It's about showing us how do I take the next step, this deep relationship with God. Maybe you've been following Jesus for some time. And maybe you've reached this plateau. You've reached this point in your relationship with God where you say, I don't know how to take my relationship to the next level. I don't know, I don't know what to do. I feel like I don't hear the voice of God anymore. The tabernacle opens up access and shows us how God designed, he designed a way for him to be approached. He designed a way for him to be worshipped. And if we learn that process, if we learn what ministers to the heart of God, we come into a deeper relationship with God. How many of you know, want to know, the, how many of you want to know the process if it's going to get you closer to God? Come on. I want to know the process. If, I, if I'm going to have a deeper relationship with God, I want to know how can I get there. God, what are the things that you need me to do in my life so that I can see you face to face, so I can see your glory manifest on the earth, that I can see your healing power throughout our, our church, throughout our community. God, I want more of a relationship with you, so how do I access, it, access that? The tabernacle is all about opening up access. The process is important. The second reason why we're talking about the tabernacle as an, old covenant, uh, as an old covenant thing, and we're bringing it into the, the new covenant. The second reason is that the tabernacle is a shadow of heavenly worship. That the tabernacle is actually a copy of worship that is happening in heaven. That it is not just for the old covenant. It's not just for the Old Testament. It's actually happening in heaven right now. It's a model of the form of worship that's taking place. In Hebrews chapter 8, Verse 1, it says, We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. Get this. There, this is, Jesus is the high priest that he's talking about. There he, Jesus, ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Then if you jump down to verse 5, it says, They referring to the priests of the Old Testament, they serve in a system of worship that is only a copy 
a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. There is a a tabernacle in heaven. There's a form of worship that is happening in heaven that is being modeled in the Old Testament tabernacle. And that is why we're going to be talking about it. Because it's still happening today. That form of worship is still happening today in heaven right now. Before we talk about the first element of the tabernacle, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take this, this, uh, this journey through the tabernacle. We're going to take it one element of a to- at a time, and we're going to talk about each element in detail. But before we do that, let's first get an overview of the whole thing. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. And you can see right here on the right side is you would enter in through the gates. A couple weeks ago, I preached a message out of Psalm 100 that talked about the gates of thanksgiving and the courts of praise. And how there's an aspect when you're coming into the house of God, there, there always has to be an aspect of praise and thanksgiving, of gratitude and rejoicing. That is why the church and that is why the people of God who are the temples of the Holy Spirit, you are the house of God according to the New Testament, that is why each of us, it's so important to, to rejoice, to be filled with joy, to be filled with thanksgiving and with gratitude. And so you see that in Psalm 100, it talks about entering into the gates with thanksgiving and the courts with praise. But right from the gate, the first thing that you would step, the first thing that you would see is you step into the outer courts. And by the way, this, this section on the outside of the tabernacle is called the outer courts. And... Um, only the priests could go in the holy place. So the outer courts is where everybody else in Israel hung out. And so they, the first thing they would see, they'd come to the altar of sacrifice. The next thing that they would come to was the bronze basin. And this is something that the priests would wash themselves in before entering the holy place. And then they would go through a curtain and enter into the holy place. And it was a very dimly lit room. The only light that was in the holy place was the light that was coming from the golden lampstand that would be to your left. And immediately to your right, parallel with, with the, um, the golden, lampstand, golden lampstand, would be the table of showbread. And directly ahead of you would be the altar of incense. And beyond the altar of incense was the next room. It was the holiest of holy places. And the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the, holy pla- in the holiest of holy places. And only one time a year would the high priest enter into the holiest of holy places. He would move beyond a veil. There was a veil that separated the, the, the holy place from the holy of holies. And only one time a year would they move into the holy of holies. And the room, the holy of holies, they would, they would fill the holy of holies with the incense from the altar of incense. So it was very smoky. And it was to shield their eyes from fully beholding the Ark of the Covenant. So they, they would enter into this room and they would, they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of Israel for that year. And they would do that one time a year. That is the overview of the tabernacle, what it looked like. But let's talk about the first element as you walk into the tabernacle. It is the altar of sacrifice. Let's put it up on the screen. You can see that it's, it's like a rectangle-shaped box. It was made out of acacia wood and it was overlaid in bronze. And on each corner of the altar, you could see that there are these four horns. And um, worshipers would bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle. And, and they, would bind, uh, they would bind them, the, the sacrifices, they would bind the animals to the horns of the altar with cords. And then they would transfer their sins to the animal by laying their hands on their head and pronounce their sin. Then the priest would come and the animal's throat was then cut 
and its blood was poured out all over the foot of the altar, and the body was placed on the four horns of the altar. And after butchering the animal, the priest burned a sacrificial portion on the altar as a sweet aroma to the Lord. That was worship. Some of you are thinking, that's disgusting. <laughs> that is terrible. That is a horrible image of worship, and you are right. It is, a, it is horrific. It's a terrible thing. But I, I want to take you a little bit further into this journey. I want to I help immerse you a little bit more into this experience. So would you do me a favor? Would you trust me? Would you close your eyes? Everybody in this room, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to put yourself here with me. Imagine this. You're standing in line at the tabernacle. You're waiting to bring your offering to the Lord. It's hot, and you're completely exposed to the sun. You're waiting your turn. And as you wait your turn, you can hear the sounds of animals. You can hear goats bleeding. You can hear cows mooing. There's doves cooing. But then you hear the sound of their cries as their throats are being cut. You can smell blood and burning flesh. And the sun, the heat of the sun, only intensifies that smell. And you look down at the young lamb that you've brought with you, and you feel guilty. Because you know that your forgiveness is going to require another to die on your behalf. But this isn't your first time to the tabernacle. You've done this before. So you also look forward to the weight that's lifted off of your heart when the sacrifice is complete and when that lamb is dead. You can open up your eyes. What a powerful and visceral experience this would have been. To be coming to the tabernacle, it's not like we come here today, we're, you know, we're in a tie, and we're clean, and we're, you know, we're, we're singing and clapping and sitting in comfortable chairs. No, when you came to the house of worship, when you came to the tabernacle, you brought a sacrifice with you. You never came empty-handed. You always brought something with you. You would be standing. If it was hot outside, you'd be in the sun. If it was raining outside, you'd be in the rain. You were cold. You'd wait your line in turn, but that was all part of your worship, waiting in line and preparing your heart to approach the altar. It was a powerful experience, and maybe for some of you, that, that experience was kind of uncomfortable for you, and you know, it's uncomfortable. The reason it's uncomfortable is because we've forgotten the true horror of sin and what it does. We have forgotten how terrible sin is and what it costs. You know, the devil in Genesis 3, the devil, just like he did for Eve, he made sin attractive and said, doesn't it look good? Doesn't that look beautiful? That's what we've done today is we've made sin attractive. We've made it desirable. Even, even it's become acceptable. Some sins have become acceptable in our society. But this altar of sacrifice is a reminder of how terrible sin is and the price that must be paid for forgiveness. Make no mistake, the altar was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of sacrifice, and worship always includes an altar. Worship always has a place of sacrifice. I want to talk about the construction of this, of this altar. Like I mentioned before, it was made of acacia wood. And the reason it wasn't made of cedar or pine or anything else, it was made of, out of acacia wood because acacia wood doesn't easily rot. It's a symbol of purity of the soul or incorruptible humanity. And because of its sturdiness and its resistance to decay, it also symbolizes resurrection and immortality. 
So the construction of this altar is, is acacia wood, but it's overlaid with bronze. Now, bronze is the biblical symbol for judgment. Bronze is a symbol of judgment. When we uh, look at Numbers chapter 21, if you were to go and you open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21, there's this interesting story of the people of God are out in the desert. They're, they haven't gone to the promised the promise land yet. They're in the desert, and they're complaining against God yet again. They're whining, and they're complaining, and, they, and they're saying they want to go back to Egypt. And all out of nowhere, poisonous snakes start to come into the camp and start to bite the Israelites. And now the Israelites are dying because these poisonous snakes are biting them. So they plead for forgiveness, and they ask God to forgive them. And here's what God does. God instructs Moses to build a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole. And if you've been bitten by a snake, all the person would need to do is look at the bronze serpent that was lifted up on the pole, and they would live. And in John chapter 3, Jesus says that he is the bronze serpent. John 3, 14. Uh, Yeah, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. And as Jesus said this, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. See, the altar itself is a picture of Jesus. That it's made of acacia wood, uh, that, that it's rot resistant, it's covered in bronze, and Jesus, who's pure, who's immortal, who's incorruptible, he took on or he was covered in the weight of our sin or covered in God's judgment. The altar itself represents Jesus because he was God himself, he was immortal, he was incorruptible, he did not sin, but he was covered in the judgment of God. Another element that we see to the construction of the, tab- of, of the altar is the four horns on each corner. And these horns, they represent mercy. In fact, there's a couple stories in the book of First and Second Kings that uh, when an Israelite deserved judgment but they needed forgiveness, they would run to the tabernacle, they would run to the house of God, and they would grab hold of the horns of the altar, and they would cry, Mercy! The cross is really the altar of God, where the lamb was slain. The lamb of God was slain. And anybody who needs mercy needs only to come to the cross, grab hold of the sacrifice of Jesus, and cry, mercy. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. The altar itself is a picture of Jesus. And Jesus, yes, he can be seen in the altar, but he was also the sacrifice. John Uh, John the Baptist, in in the book of John, chapter 1, he sees Jesus walking towards him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus demonstrated the altar of sacrifice when he was slain for the sins of the world. But there was another instance where Jesus demonstrated worshiping at the altar. He He demonstrated worship through sacrifice. Now, Did you know that immediately after Jesus came through the gates of Jerusalem, during the last week of his life, we call it the Passion Week, and Jesus came, some of you might know this story, he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people around him were waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, that's what we call the triumphal entry. And Jesus went straight from the gates of Jerusalem to the courts of the temple. He went straight to the altar of sacrifice. From the gates... To the altar, just like you see in the pattern of worship in the tabernacle. 
In fact, when he was in the courts on the donkey, the priest, that is where the priest said, silence your disciples, silence your followers. And Jesus looked at them and said, if these people are quiet, then even the rocks will cry out. It was in the temple courts that he said that to the priests. So he literally went from the gates of thanksgiving to the altar of sacrifice. But Jesus didn't bring a sin offering. He didn't bring a lamb or an ox or a dove because Jesus had never sinned. He didn't need a sin offering, right? But he did bring an offering. He brought himself. He was the sacrifice that was about to die on the altar. But Jesus did something really controversial immediately following this. He goes straight into the temple, and he begins to flip tables over. And in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 13, Since Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice, he knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Imagine being a disciple of Jesus, witnessing Jesus do this. Probably thinking, What is he doing? Is Jesus having a temper tantrum? Is he throwing a fit? Jesus said that he only did what he saw his father doing. So his father must have given him instructions to start clearing tables. He starts flipping tables over, and he was teaching us something as he was doing it. He was teaching us how to worship at the altar. He was giving us a picture of what it looks like to worship at the altar. I've got a table behind me. Some of you know where this is going. I'm going to try to take this off without spilling anything. This table's got all sorts of stuff on it. It's got, we've got golf balls. We've got some golf clubs. How many of you here like to golf? My dad and I, we've been golfing on. We, we love to golf. It's got it's lots of junk food. We've got some, some hostess cupcakes here. We've got, we've got some beer. Don't worry, I'm not judging anybody in this room. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. We've got some sports stuff. We've got a snowboarding helmet here. We've got... We've got, we got a fishing pole. I'm going to put this right here. I've, I've just been getting into fishing. This is a great area to fish is what I hear, but I haven't caught anything yet. We've got some, we've got some rackets. There's all sorts of stuff here. We've got dice. Uh, who likes to play games? I won't, I won't ask you who likes to gamble, but we've got cards. We've got dice. We've got, we've got video game controllers. Man, in my younger days, I loved playing video games, and I thought I would never stop playing video games, and then I had kids. And I don't have time for video games because i got a couple hours in the evening to do something, and I'm not going to do it playing a video game. We've got DVDs. We like to be entertained. How many of you exercise? Come on. Yeah, I know. Nobody wants to raise their hand. This is about all I can handle, so I'll buy this from home. We've got exercise ways. We've got all this stuff on this table. And, you know, is any of this stuff bad in and of itself? You know what? I'm even going to put my phone on the table here because, you know, the, the phone, it, all of this stuff represents things that, that, we can, that can steal our affection, that can steal our time, that can steal our energy. And none of it is bad in and of themselves. But the problem is when these things start to pull at our affections. When my heart leans more towards exercise or golf or anything else than it does prayer, then there's a problem. If my heart leans towards, if it leans towards people or food or entertainment or anything else than it does towards God, then I know that there's a problem in my heart. 
The Bible says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who is given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Sometimes we bring things into our temple that compete with the affections of God. Sometimes we allow things to come into the temple, whether it be vanity or gluttony or lust or consumerism. There's many things that have the potential to speak louder than God's voice. And my question for you today is, does does entertainment speak louder to you than the voice of God? Does lust consume your thoughts, consume your heart more than the voice of God does? Do your hobbies, like golf or sports, none of it's bad in in and of themselves, but does does it speak louder to your life than the voice of God? When you look at your bank account, where your money's going, when you look at your calendar, where your time is going, when you look at your giftings, are they going to waste? Are you spending them on God? Or are you spending your resources on the things of the world? When does a blessing become an idol? It becomes an idol when it starts to steer you away from a relationship with God, when it competes with the voice and the affections of God. Everybody in this room, I want to give you a new definition of worship this morning. If you're you're taking notes, get out your pens, get ready to write this down, because I'm about to give you a new definition of worship. Are you ready? That's worship. Worship is flipping the tables of compromise in your heart. Saying, God, there's nothing in the way of my affections for you. There's nothing in the way of my relationship with you. It's saying, Jesus, come into my house. Come into my temple and examine if there's anything I need to get rid of. That's what Jesus did in the temples. He came into the temple of God. He said, this was supposed to be a place where you have an intimate relationship with God, but you've brought in all these other things and you've allowed it to consume your life and you've allowed the voices of the world and the voices of materialism to consume your life and now it's taken you away from your true love. It's taken you away from your relationship with God and Jesus says, get rid of it. Get it out of here. I want to clear this house. I want you to have an empty space for God to come and inhabit. Now, can I define holiness for you, church? This is holiness. It's saying, God, there is nothing that I have that's going to compete with you. There's nothing in my life that's in the way. You have all of me. I'm not holding on to anything. You know what some of us do? We give God 98% and we hold on to 2% because we say, I'm not, I'm really not, I'm not ready to give up that relationship. I'm not willing to admit this struggle. God, you can have everything else. I tithe on Sundays. You can have my money. I, I go to church. I take my kids, I kid, take my kids to church. You can have my family. But God, this, this thing that I have in my life, I'm not going to give it to you. And you hold on to 2%. But that 2% is what's going to take you to the next level with God. Surrendering that last 2% is the thing that God is looking for. He wants all of you. He wants a clean table. I present my heart to the Lord clean and ready for him to use. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies 
as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Then he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Church, we're called to be living sacrifices. No longer do we have to bring an ox or a lamb or a dove and and have its throat slit and, and its blood poured out. No, we don't have to die for our sin because Jesus already did that. Jesus was the sacrifice on the cross, and so he has called us now, since he paid the penalty for sin, he paid the price of death, he calls you now to be a living sacrifice. What's a living sacrifice? What, what does a living sacrifice do? Two things for you this morning. Living sacrifices, number one, are submissive. Living sacrifices are submissive. This heavenly model of worship that we see in the tabernacle, it begins with submission. The first thing we do when we step into the house of God, when we step into a relationship with God, we submit ourselves to him. Here's the problem with a living sacrifice, church. It can jump off the altar. It's alive, right? At any moment, it can get off the altar. So every day, it chooses to stay on the altar. A living sacrifice chooses daily to submit their self to the authority of God as an act of worship. And this is important because submission prepares the way, it prepares our hearts for the next thing that we're going to be talking about next week. It it prepares our hearts for, spoiler alert, obedience to his word. The bronze basin that we see next, that we're going to talk about next week, represents the word of God. And if you're not submitted to the Lord, when you approach the word of God, you don't hear it, you you don't receive it, you don't consider it authority because you're not submitted to God. You're not submitted to his word. But submission first prepares us to receive from the word of God and be washed by the word of God. The second thing that living sacrifices do, and I'm going to ask Mary to come up as we close. Living sacrifices are passionate. They're passionate. Sacrifices burn, church. They burn. Submission to God It comes from a deep passion to see God glorified. When you're a living sacrifice, you have a deep desire, a deep passion to see Jesus famous in the world around you, to see the glory of God revealed. You become passionate. Someone once said, light yourself on fire and people will come from miles to watch you burn. I like that quote. I want to light my life on fire. I want people to see how passionate I am for the Lord so that when they see your life, they go, what is it? What is it that you're so passionate about? I need some of that. I need it. We burn so the world can watch us burn. I love this description. Some people, somebody asked me, it was Helen Glenn. She, she was in the office throughout the week. And hello, Ellen, Ellen and Kim Glenn. Uh, I'm so glad that you're watching us online. But she asked this question, where did, where did everybody get the resources for the tabernacle? Where did they get the gold? Where did they get the bronze? Where did they get all the materials? Exodus 35, 21 tells you. It says, all whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were moved came and brought their sacred offerings to the Lord. They brought all the materials needed for the tabernacle, for the performance of its rituals and for the sacred garments. Everybody whose hearts 
were burning, whose hearts were moved, whose spirits were stirred, who said, I have a passion to see God glorified. I have a passion to love God with all of my heart. I want to submit all of these things for God's purpose, for the construction of his house, for, for what he's going to do. The people whose hearts were burning submitted their things for the construction of the tabernacle. Jesus was passionate. In fact, when he was clearing out the temple in in John chapter 2, it says that the disciples remembered what Psalm 69 said. Psalm 69 says that zeal or passion for my father's house consumes me. Jesus had this passion for his father's house that consumed every part of him. And his disciples remembered when they saw Jesus flipping tables. This is the passion that we were reading about our whole lives in the book of Psalms. See, before Jesus became a literal sacrifice on the altar, he was first a living sacrifice. He lived his life in full submission to his father. And he was passionate about seeing him glorified. He didn't bring any honor to himself, didn't bring any glory to himself. And when we worship God, when we come into a relationship with the living God, the first thing that we do is we submit our lives as living sacrifices to him. Church, grace is free. You don't have to do anything for it, but it will cost you your life. And it's not, it's not I do, therefore I am. It's I am, therefore I do. I am saved. I am free. I am loved by God. I have no sin. There is no condemnation. I am a child of God, therefore I submit my life to him. I give him everything. I don't need to hold anything from him because if I give my life to God, he's going to do immeasurably more with it than I could ever do on my own. Who needs to submit to God today? Who needs a renewed passion for the Lord? Maybe you've lost that first love. Maybe you've lost the passion for the Lord. Your first act of worship is to bring yourself to the altar offer yourself as a living sacrifice in gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done for you. Without submission to the Lord, you can't go any further. You can't can't receive from the word of God. You can't be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can't commune with God face to face. You can't experience the heavy weight of God's presence without first submitting at the altar your life as a living sacrifice. Can you stand with me, church? Let's pray together. I'm going to extend an invitation for those of you who might be here and you realize that you have not submitted your life. But today you say, this is it. I want to give my life to the person of Jesus. I want to be a living sacrifice. I want him to use all of me. With every head bowed and eyes closed right now, if that's you and you say, today I'm giving my life to Jesus, Would you raise your hand in the room? Let me see your hand. Lift it up in the air. Praise Jesus. Praise God. I see your hands. Anybody else? You can put your hands down. Would everybody in the room repeat after me? Jesus, I love you. And right now I'm burning with a passion. But don't let that fire go out. Forgive me of my sins. And help me start fresh once again. 
I want your Holy Spirit to fill my life with power and with passion. Keep me burning as long as I live. I give my life to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Can we lift up a shout of praise for those who gave their their lives to Jesus today? Praise God. I want you to know, if you made that decision today, that you are a new creation. That that God has has literally, the old has died and the new has come. That, That whatever you've done in the past up till now, God has forgiven you for. He says, live free, live in me, live according to my word. I would encourage you, if you made that decision, grab a connect card on the way out. Put your name and your email and your phone number on here. And, and just check the box on the back that said, I made a decision for Jesus. Because I want to connect with you. And I just want to thank God with you. The second invitation I want to give out is for those who need a renewed passion for the Lord. And here's what I want to do today. Uh, uh, this is new. I don't, I've never done this. Uh, but what I want to do is if, you, if you're here today and you say, look, I, I love Jesus. I've been following him my whole life. But I just need a new fire. I need a burning to take place. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you just to move forward right here with me. And I'm going to stand up here with you. Because I need that in my life. I need a renewed passion for the Lord in my life. And if that's you and you say, God, I just want to burn for you. I want to give you the last 2%. The 2% that I'm holding back, I want to give it to you. If that's you on the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to come forward. And we're just going to pray together as a church family for God's power to fall in this place and give us a new fire. Here we go, church. Ready? One, two, three. If that's you, come forward. Praise God. I'm coming down here with you. This is me. Just put your hands up to heaven and just begin to ask for it. God, we want more of you. Say it with your voice. Lift up your voices. Jesus, we want more of you. Just say it. Say, God, I want more. I give you the 2%. Whatever else I've been holding back, God, I give it to you. God, my relationships. God, the material things, the anxiety, the fear, the addictions, the lust, whatever it is. God, I give it to you. Set me on fire so the world can watch me burn. We want more of you, God. Holy Spirit, we're not satisfied until we experience a life that is filled with your power, with your Holy Spirit. So God, give us that today. We don't want to be a church that's apathetic, that sits around and does nothing. God, we need your power in our life. We need that fire in our life. So, Father, here we are at the altar of sacrifice, and we bring ourselves, we bring our lives to you, Jesus. If you agree with that, would you say loudly, amen. 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 Church, here's what I want to do. If you need further prayer, I'm going to ask the guards to stay up here and maybe the bakers to stay up here. I'm going to stay up here for a bit. But I'm going to, I'm, we're going to be up here. We're going to spend some time praying for you if you need some prayer for the rest of you. I love you. I'd encourage you, if you're interested in a grow class or a connect class coming up, fill out one of these and check that little box on the back. And uh, we want to connect with you. So we love you so much. We'll see you next week, church.